In Matthew 19, Jesus left Galilee, traveled through Perea, and finally arrived in Judea. He came to Judea to keep the feast of Passover and to be crucified as the Passover lamb for the whole world's sins. In A.D. 29, Passover, Nisan 14, fell on a Wednesday. Jesus arrived in Bethany on the previous Friday, Nisan the 9th. It was there that he lodged with his friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus for the next several nights. On Saturday, Nisan 10, Jesus triumphantly entered the city of Jerusalem, riding upon the foal of a donkey as cries of adulation for him echoed throughout the city. Sunday, Nisan 11, Jesus cursed the fig tree as they returned to Jerusalem. Later that day, he drove the money changers and merchandisers out of the temple. Jesus and his disciples returned to Jerusalem on Monday, Nisan 12. Upon coming to the city, the fig tree cursed by Jesus the day before was now withered. Jesus returned to the temple complex, pronouncing a polemic and censure against the religious leaders, as recorded in Matthew 21, 23 to 23, 39. Now, this polemic and censure provides the background for the three questions presented in Matthew 24, 1 to 3. These three questions set the stage for the final recorded sermon of Jesus, the sermon about the end times in Matthew 24, 4 through 25, 46. This sermon is historically known as the Olivet Discourse because it was preached on the Mount of Olives. This sermon's theme is the second coming of Christ at the end of the present age when he will establish his kingdom and usher in the future age. Now, the second coming of Christ is a two-phased event. A two-phased event. Phase one is the rapture of the church. Phase two is the return of Christ. Between those two events is a seven-year period known as the tribulation. The tribulation marks the final seven years of this present age. And Jesus begins his sermon with the tribulation events culminating in his return and the subsequent judgment upon Israel and the nations that follow. Now, it's necessary, however, to point out that Jesus mentions nothing about the rapture of the church in his sermon about the end times. At this point in the scope of biblical revelation, the rapture is a mystery. That, it is, that is, it is previously unrevealed. So there's no rapture in Matthew 24 to 25. It picks up with the tribulation, takes us through the return of Christ, and the subsequent judgment against the Israel and the nations. The answers to the disciples' three questions forms the most extended answer to any question in the entire New Testament. It is also one of the scripture's most debated and misunderstood text. Matthew 24 and 25 is one of the most debated and misunderstood text. Despite the debates and misinterpretations, we can arrive at a biblical interpretation of the sermon about the end times. And as such, we're going to apply the following rules of biblical interpretation. We must adopt these rules as we study Matthew 24 to 25. First of all, Scripture must be interpreted literally in light of the perspective of the author and original readers 
considering the text grammar, historicity, and culture. Again, we must interpret the scripture literally in the perspective of the author and original readers, considering the text grammar, historicity, and culture. Number two, we must interpret scripture literally, allowing for the everyday use of figurative language. Again, we must interpret the scripture literally, allowing for the everyday use of figurative language. Prophetic texts are filled with types and symbols and figures and parables. Each of those must be interpreted accordingly, following the rules of literal interpretation. Number three, Scripture must be interpreted within its context. Scripture must be interpreted within its context. Number four, Scripture must interpret Scripture. Scripture must interpret Scripture. So when we have a difficult passage, we're going to understand it with a clearer passage. And number five, Scripture must be interpreted to preserve the promise and prophecies of the Hebrew Scriptures. Scripture must be interpreted to preserve the promises and prophecies of the Hebrew Scriptures. Friends, new revelation may clarify and explain older revelation, but new revelation cannot alter or change it. So with those five rules of biblical interpretation, we are going to make our way through Matthew 24 and 25. Also, there are three schools of interpretation regarding Christ's return, post-millennialism, amillennialism, and premillennialism. The first two positions, post-millennialism and amillennialism, do not subscribe to a literal interpretation of Scripture. Only a premillennial position is based upon a literal interpretation of Scripture. And to clarify, it, the, the, each of these positions has to do with when Jesus returns in relation to the millennial kingdom. Post, amil, premill. Postmillennialism teaches that the return of Christ will occur after the millennial kingdom has been established on earth. It was first taught in the 1600s and was held by the likes of Jonathan Edwards, Charles Wesley, Charles Hodge, A.A. A. Hodge, and Augustus Strong, to name a few. Between World War I and II, postmillennialism died out. However, today it is being revived as dominion theology. Dominion theology teaches Christians to take over all aspects of society, including government, so that we can Christianize society and usher in the kingdom of God on earth. Postmillennialism. There are significant major issues with postmillennialism. First, postmillennialism is based on spiritualizing or allegorizing what the text says. Second, it denies a literal reign of Christ on earth. And three, it denies a future redeemed national Israel. Amillennialism. Amillennialism teaches that the time between the first and second advent of Christ is the millennial kingdom. 
In other words, the church is currently experiencing the millennial kingdom at the present. The millennial kingdom, accordingly, is not a literal 1,000-year reign. Instead, it refers to an indefinite period. Proponents of this position believe that Christ is presently fulfilling his kingly office by reigning over the saints on earth from heaven. Amillennialism originated in the 2nd century AD by Clement of Alexandria and Origen. It became the official position of the Roman Catholic Church during the Middle Ages. Amillennialism continued to be taught by some reformers such as John Wycliffe, Martin Luther, Philip Melanchthon, John Calvin, and Ulrich Swingley. This theory has become popular today in theological liberalism and covenant theology. Theological liberalism takes a low view of the inspiration of Scripture and is skeptical towards eschatology. Covenant theology denies the literal interpretation of Scripture, embracing an allegorical interpretation. Amillennialism. There are several problems with amillennialism. Amillennialism destroys the rapture of the church, claiming that the resurrection of the dead is only a reference to the spiritual resurrection at salvation, not a physical resurrection. Amillennialism does away with the tribulation. It denies the future existence of a redeemed national Israel, purporting that the church has replaced Israel and inherited God's promises to the nation. Now, the third position, premillennialism, is established upon the literal interpretation of the scriptures. Oswald Allis states, Old Testament prophecies, if literally interpreted, cannot be regarded as having yet been fulfilled or as being capable of fulfillment in this present age. Hence, premillennialism teaches that Christ's return follows the tribulation, but before the millennial kingdom. His return to earth will be literal and bodily. Following his return, Christ establishes his kingdom on earth for 1,000 years, after which it will merge with God's eternal kingdom. Early church fathers, such as Clement of Rome, Ignatius, Polycarp, Papias, Justin Martyr, Arrhenius, Tertullian, Hippolytus, and Cyprian, held to what is now called premillennialism. Historian Philip Schaff states the most striking point in the eschatology of the Antonicene age is the prominent Kiliism or millenarianism, what we would call premillennialism, that is the belief of a visible reign of Christ in glory on earth with the risen saints for a thousand years before the general resurrection and judgment. It was indeed not the doctrine of the church embodied in any creed or form of devotion, but a widely current opinion of distinguished teachers. Although the Roman Catholic Church had taught amillennialism throughout the Middle Ages, and many reformers continued espousing it, it was the Puritans who revived the biblical teaching of premillennialism. Now, premillennialism is not only the historical position of the church, but also the position of the Jewish people in Jesus' day, a point that will be clarified today. From this position, Jesus will present his sermon about the end times. However, it is necessary to consider the three questions in Matthew 24, 1-3 that set the stage for the sermon to follow. 
Now, Matthew sets the stage for the sermon by recording the prophecy behind the three questions in Matthew 24, 1 to 2. The prophecy behind the three questions, Matthew 24, 1 to 2. Verse 1, Matthew 24, Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Now, the narrative here continues immediately after the temple polemic and censure of the religious leaders. Matthew notes that Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple building to him. The corollary passage of Mark 13, 1 states, As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Now, what would have prompted the disciples to call Jesus' attention to the temple and surrounding buildings? The answer is found in Matthew 23, 38. Jesus finishes his censure of the religious leaders by saying, Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Disgusted by the religious leaders' fraudulent ways, Jesus declared the temple was no longer God's house, but their house. And as such, it would become desolate, eremos, or uninhabitable. The disciples could not understand how Jesus could make such a statement. Regarding the Herodian temple, Josephus reports that the temple was the most admirable of all the works that we have seen or heard of, both for its curious structure and its magnitude, and also for the vast wealth bestowed upon it, as well as for the glorious reputation it had for its holiness. The temple was so revered by the diaspora Jews that they paid annual taxes for its upkeep, according to the Sibylline oracles. Sadly, the disciples were so preoccupied with the temporal and not the eternal. You know, many of you believers today suffer the same preoccupation. You are more wrapped up in the things of this world than the things of God. Perhaps you are more concerned about the church building than the preaching of the Bible. It shouldn't matter where the church meets, whether they meet in a lower auditorium or whether they meet in the sanctuary, but wherever they meet, that God's word is being faithfully preached. If you're hung up on where the church is meeting, rather than what is being preached, you need to examine yourself. Let me ask you this. How many of you will sacrifice time and energy to move around your schedules to view that cannot-miss-television show or sports game. But when it comes to the study of God's Word or to gather with God's people, you are seemingly too busy. Does that describe you? If it does, you've got some soul-searching to do. You've got some business to do with a holy God. Because your priorities are out of whack. Jesus responds to the disciples. Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. 
Now, a single stone of the temple measured 40 feet long by 12 feet wide by 12 feet thick weighed up to 100 tons. Nonetheless, Jesus prophesied that God was going to destroy the temple so that not one stone was left standing. And indeed, 40 years later, in A.D. 70, the Roman general Titus attacked Jerusalem, massacred its inhabitants, and razed the temple. When the Roman army was finished, not one stone of the temple was left standing on top of another stone. So the prophecy behind the three questions sets the stage for the sermon. The disciples set the stage for Jesus' sermon by asking three questions in Matthew 24, verse 3. So three questions asked, Matthew 24, verse 3. As he was sitting upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, Matthew notes here that Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives. Uniquely, Jesus' first and last recorded sermons in Matthew are upon mountains. Jesus is also sitting, the posture of a rabbi, when he presents both sermons. Following Jesus' statement regarding the destruction of the temple, the disciples ask, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Luke 19.11 reveals that they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Now, friends, we have to step back in time, and we need to place ourselves in the sandals of the disciples to understand their thinking behind their questions. For centuries, the Jewish people lived under pagan oppression and sought the promise of the Messiah and deliverance. Using the Hebrew scripture prophecies for telling the Messiah's coming, the Jewish religious leaders pieced together how those events would come to pass. Today we have various extra-biblical Jewish writings attesting to their understanding of these events. Their ordering, the Jewish ordering of end-time events based on the Hebrew Scriptures is as follows. Number one, a time of tribulation will precede the Messiah's coming. Deuteronomy 4, 27 and 30. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. When you are in distress, tribulation... And all these things have come upon you in the latter days. You will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. Jeremiah 30 verse 7. Alas, for the day is great. There is none like it. It is a time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. Number one, a time of tribulation will precede the Messiah's coming. Number two, during this time of tribulation... An Elijah-like forerunner will appear announcing the Messiah's coming. Malachi 4.5 Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of, a, of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Again, number two, during this time of tribulation, an Elijah-like forerunner will appear announcing the Messiah's coming. Number three, when the Messiah appears... He will establish his kingdom and vindicate his people. 
Zechariah 14, 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. Again, when the Messiah appears, he will establish his kingdom and vindicate his people. Number four, a league of nations will gather to fight against the Messiah. Zechariah 14, 1-2, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will be not be cut off from the city. Again, a league of nations will gather in Jerusalem to fight against the Messiah. Number five, the Messiah will destroy the League of Nations. The Messiah will destroy the League of Nations. Zechariah 9.14 The Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning, and the Lord God will blow the trumpet, and will march in the storm winds of the south. Zechariah 14.3 Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. Number So number five, the Messiah will destroy the League of Nations. Number six, Jerusalem will be purged and restored. Zechariah 14, 8. In that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them towards the eastern sea, the other half towards the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. Zechariah 14, 10 to 11. All the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate, as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. People will live in it, and there will be no longer be a curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security. Again, number six, Jerusalem will be purged and restored. Number seven. All Jewish people scattered throughout the world will be gathered and returned to Israel. All Jewish people scattered throughout the world will be gathered and returned to Israel. Jeremiah 29, 14, I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you to the place from where I sent you into exile. Jeremiah 30, verse 3, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah. The Lord says, I will also bring them back to the land that I gave to their forefathers, and they shall possess it. Again, number seven, all Jewish people scattered throughout the world will be gathered and returned to Israel. Number eight, Israel will become the centralized nation of the world, and the Messiah will subjugate all the Gentile nations. Israel will be the centralized nation of the world, and the Messiah will subjugate all the Gentile nations. Zechariah 8, to 23 So many people and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem, and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Zechariah 14, 6 then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Number eight, Israel will become the centralized nation of the world. The Messiah will subjugate all the Gentile nations. Number nine, the Messiah will usher in an eternal age of peace and righteousness. 
2 Samuel 7, 12 to 13. I will raise up a descendant after you who will come forth from, from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Isaiah 9, 7. There will be no end of the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. So let me recap those nine statements. Number one, a time of tribulation will precede the Messiah's coming. Number two, during this time of tribulation, an Elijah-like forerunner will appear announcing the Messiah's coming. Number three, when the Messiah appears, he will establish his kingdom and vindicate his people. Number four, a league of nations will gather in Jerusalem to fight against the Messiah. Number five, the Messiah will destroy the league of nations. Number six, Jerusalem will be purged and restored. Number seven, all Jewish people scattered throughout the world will be gathered and returned to Israel. Number eight, Israel will become the centralized nation of the world and the Messiah will subjugate all the Gentile nations. And number nine, the Messiah will usher in an eternal age of peace and righteousness. Now, interestingly, this Jewish ordering of end-time events corresponds with the premillennial view of the end-time doctrine taught throughout the New Testament. This ordering of end-time events provides a snapshot of the disciples' thinking when they pose their three questions. While the disciples had a solid understanding of the ordering of end-time events, they lacked understanding regarding the Messiah's coming. The divine plan was for the Messiah to come twice. His first coming was to sacrifice himself for, the, for humanity's sin to redeem humanity from the lake of fire. His second coming will be to judge sin and establish his kingdom on earth. Like the rest of the Jewish people, the disciples did not understand that the Messiah came to provide inward deliverance from sin. Instead, they were looking for the Messiah to provide them with outward deliverance from the Gentile oppression. They viewed their oppression as the tribulation. And such a view led many to believe that John the baptizer was Elijah. In John 1.21, they asked him, What then, are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Now, the Jewish people's lack of understanding about the Messiah's two comings is not their fault. After all, the prophets themselves did not understand it. The rabbis tried to explain the differing prophetic statements regarding the Messiah's comings by assuming there must be two Messiahs, Messiah the son of David and Messiah the son of Joseph. By the way, as an aside, what does Matthew do in chapter 1? He presents Jesus as both Messiah the son of David and Messiah the son of Joseph. Now, accordingly, the Messiah, son of Joseph, is the fulfillment of the prophecies regarding the Messiah's suffering such as Isaiah 53 and uh, Zechariah 12.10. The Messiah, son of David, is the fulfillment of the prophecies regarding the Messianic king who would rule over Israel and the nations, 2 Samuel 7 and Isaiah 11. Hence, Paul explains in Romans 16.25-26 that the twofold aspect of the Messiah's coming was a mystery which had been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested. 
Okay? So we, we cannot be angry at the Jewish people. We cannot be angry at the disciples because they didn't understand the two-phased coming or the, the, the first and second coming of the Messiah. It was a mystery. Now, returning to the disciples' questions, they ask, when will these things happen? Their first question is for a date for the temple's destruction. These things, hutas, refers back to what Jesus was speaking of, namely the desolation and destruction of the temple. In their minds, they are connecting the temple's destruction with the coming of God's kingdom. Why, though, do they connect these two events? The disciples fully knew Daniel's prophecy. Daniel 9.24 prophesied that God established a 490-year plan to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Daniel declared that from the decree to restore the temple until the Messiah's coming was 483 years. After the Messiah's revelation, Daniel 9.26 reveals the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. This verse foretells that the Messiah's death and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. The Messiah died in AD 29. The temple was destroyed in AD 70. After these two events, the final seven years of the 490-year prophecy would begin. Daniel 9.27 reveals that the Antichrist will make a firm covenant with the many for seven years. But in the middle of the seven years, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Jesus refers to this prophecy in Matthew 24.15 as part of his sermon about the end times. After the final seven years, the Messiah returns, destroys the Antichrist, and establishes his kingdom. Thus, the disciples' question is asked in light of their understanding of Daniel's prophecy. Now, it's interesting, Matthew does not include Jesus' answer to that question. However, the corollary passage in Luke does answer the question. Luke 21, 20-24 records Jesus saying this, as his, this is his answer. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant, and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land, and wrath to this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword, they will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Notice several facts in Jesus' answer regarding the temple's destruction. The destruction will occur when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies. This event occurred in AD 70 when General Titus and the Roman armies surrounded Jerusalem, killing its citizens and destroying the city and temple. The destruction of the temple resulted in the scattering of the Jewish people 
amongst the Gentile nations and the occupation of Jerusalem by the Gentiles, i.e. non-Jewish people. Jerusalem remains under Gentile control until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What is the times or what are the times of the Gentiles? The times of the Gentiles is a period beginning with the Babylonian captivity in 606 BC and ending with Jesus' return at the end of the tribulation. During this entire time, Jerusalem has been, is, and will be under Gentile control regardless of what any political leader may claim. Daniel's chapter 2 through 7 outlines the course of the times of the Gentiles. Next, the disciples ask, what will be the sign of your coming? Their second question involved knowing what signs would precede Jesus' coming. Coming, parousia, is a technical term for the second coming of Christ. Writing about the second coming, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 3.13, He may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming, the parousia, of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. Again, in 2 Thessalonians 2.8, Paul writes, Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming, parousia. The Apostle John also uses the term to refer to the second coming in 1 John 2.28. He writes, Now little children abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming, his parousia. However, we must understand, the disciples do not use the term parousia here in Matthew 24, 3 about the second coming of Christ. Again, their knowledge is limited. They do not yet understand that there's two comings of the Messiah. Jesus is sitting before them. He has not left them, so there's no reason for him to return to them. They want to know when Jesus was going to initiate the kingdom. Sign refers to a visible token or indicator for when something will occur. The disciples were looking for visible indicators of when Jesus would establish God's kingdom on earth. Sadly, they did not yet understand that the church dispensation would occur before those events would begin. Luke records in Acts 1-6 that before Jesus ascended into heaven, the disciples asked, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Jesus replied in Acts 1, 7 to 8, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The church dispensation and the rapture of the church was not revealed to them until after the Holy Spirit came upon them. Finally, the disciples ask, What will be the sign of the end of the age? Now, I want you to note here that grammatically the term sign, simeon, is attached to both the second and third questions. And, suntilia, refers to the completion of something. In the New Testament, suntilia is only used in the phrase suntilia to ionos, meaning the completion of the age. The end of the age is a common rabbinic phrase referring to this present worldly age. The disciples, again, are looking for visible tokens or indicators that will alert them about the completion of the present worldly age. Now, an age, aeon or eon, 
refers to a period of history or segment of time with distinct features. Biblically, God has divided time into three ages or three eons, the past age, the present age, the future age. It is within these ages that human history unfolds. Human history is a household run by God in which he appoints people as stewards of his household. These stewards are responsible for running the household according to the revelation given to them by God. When the stewards of the household fail, judgment follows. With judgment comes a change of stewardship. The establishment of this stewardship is known as a dispensation. The Bible sets forth seven dispensations across the span of three ages. Theologically, each dispensation has been named for the overriding character of the stewardship. So let me just take a moment and overview the ages and dispensations. Okay, So in the past age, first of all, we have the dispensation of innocence, Genesis 1 through 3. The test was, do not eat. The failure was, they ate. The judgment was, curse and death. Still in the past age, we have the dispensation of conscience, Genesis 3 to 8. The test, do good, make blood sacrifices. The failure, there was great wickedness. The judgment was a universal flood. We continue in the past age with the dispensation of government, Genesis 9 to 11. The test, scatter and multiply. The failure, they refuse to scatter. Instead, they build a tower. The judgment, a confusion of languages. Still in the past age, we have the dispensation of promise, Genesis 12 to Exodus 19. The test, dwell in Canaan. The failure, they dwelled in Egypt. The judgment, the Egyptian bondage. The last dispensation in the past age was the dispensation of law, Exodus 20 to Acts 1. The test, obey the law. The failure, they broke the law, rejected the Messiah. The judgment, worldwide dispersion. Currently, we're in the present age. This is the dispensation of the church, Acts 2 through Revelation 20. The test, receive Messiah as Savior and Lord. The failure, there is a rejection of Messiah as Savior and Lord. The judgment will be the Great Tribulation. And then there will be the future age, which will be the dispensation of the kingdom, Revelation 20 to 22. The test during that dispensation is to obey and worship the Messiah. There will be a failure, a final great rebellion, and there will be a judgment, the great white throne and the lake of fire. Now in Matthew 13, Jesus used the parable of the dragnet to depict how it will be at the end of the age, Matthew 13, 49. Since the focus of the Matthew 13 parables was on the present age, the end of the age refers to the completion of the present age. Nothing in the text of Matthew 24 implies that the disciples were asking about the completion of the past age or the future age. They understood the Messiah would establish his kingdom on earth at the end of the present age. Hence, their third question involved knowing what signs would announce the completion of the present age. The last seven years of the present age are known as the Great Tribulation. And as the Great Tribulation draws to a close, Jesus returns to earth to judge and establish his physical kingdom. Matthew 24 to 25, Jesus reveals the signs associated with the Great Tribulation, his return, the establishment of his kingdom, and the judgment of Israel and the nations. Friends, we need to understand 
that the purpose of Jesus' sermon about the end times is to challenge the disciples' motives as revealed in their three questions. Their questions reveal an eagerness to participate in Jesus' coming to establish his kingdom. But their eagerness is due in part to their desire to cast off the shackles of Gentile oppression. Jesus stated in Matthew 16, 27, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to their deeds. The disciples wanted in on this repaying of the deeds of everyone, particularly their oppressors. And like the disciples, many of you today are eager for Christ's return because you want to escape the trials of this present age or perhaps you can't wait to judge those who have done you evil. Quoting Jesus, Paul says in Acts 14, 22, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Friends, if you are clamoring for Christ's return so you can escape your troubles, you are not biblical, you are selfish. You've got to go through them if you're going to inherit the kingdom of God. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus declares, I will build my church. Will build is future tense. The church's establishment at this point in Matthew is still forthcoming. In Acts 2, following Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, the church was born. Matthew 24 to 25 is not about the church and the rapture. We will get that established time and again throughout the next several sermons. The church and the rapture is not in Matthew 24 to 25. Nonetheless, the inclusion of this Olivet Discourse in the biblical text is in the words of 2 Timothy 3.16, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so the man of God can be adequate, equipped for every good work. Friend, if you are lacking a biblical understanding of Matthew 24 to 25, you are not adequately equipped for service. Now, that is not a condemnation, but an admonishment to commit yourself to learn the truths of these scriptures. Of course, anyone of you who refuses to learn these things has condemned themselves already. But you've done that to yourself. From our perspective, modern believer, the rapture of the church will precede the great tribulation and Christ's return to earth to establish his kingdom. Knowing that the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple was accomplished, nothing is stopping the rapture from occurring. The rapture of the church is imminent. It can happen at any time. There are no signs for which to watch. Instead, believer, you are to listen for the shout of the Lord, the voice of the archangel, and the blaring of God's trumpet. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Father in heaven, creator, we come to you and Lord, we come in the name of Jesus Christ. We come to you who is the revealer of truth, the one who is truth. Father, we can trust what it says because you said it. And Father, here in Matthew 24, uh, your son, through your will, reveals things about the end times, specifically the tribulation, his return, and the judgment of Israel and the nations. Father, I praise you that you have a plan. Lord, you're not making this up as you go along. You're not responding to the whims and woes of people. But Father, you have an established plan, established in eternity past, before the foundations of the world were set and established. 
We give you the praise for that. Father, I pray that you would forgive us for not having a desire to know what your word actually says. Forgive us, Father, for for falling for these lies, for these uh, positions, these biblical views of interpretation that reject a literal interpretation. Father, forgive us when we don't desire to know what your word says. Give us that desire, Father. Many are lacking in understanding on Matthew 24 to 25. They're not equipped for service just yet. Father, I pray that through this sermon and through this series of sermons about the end times, that, Father, you will give us a biblical understanding. And, Father, we will learn these things and be better equipped to serve you. Father, I pray that we would go forth rejoicing and giving you praise beginning today and every day we have opportunity. Amen.